finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is the podcast where we read things and talk about them. Uh, half of the things that we read and talk about are comic books, and we are currently nearing the end, very, very near the end, are we, to our series on The Wicked and the Divine. Mostly, well, no, entirely written by Karen Gillan, mostly drawn by Jamie McKelvey, and mostly colored by Matthew Wilson. But... The volume we're talking about today is the penultimate volume. I was just going to say, is this the time when we can actually use the word penultimately? Yes. The penultimate volume, volume 8, The Old is the New New, which has a bunch of artists on it. Because this is a collection of specials uh, and annuals, rather than being regular monthly issues like the other volumes are. So there's a, a bevy of guest artists whose names we'll shout out, I think, when we get to the individual issues in our discussion. Yeah, I think this is, I guess, there's four one-shots. Let me look, let me check. And there's one Christmas special, and one that's listed as the funnies, and then there's a bunch of variant art in the issue, in the issue that we read. Yeah. The the one-shots are each take place in the past... Well, I guess the whole comic takes place in the past, since it takes place in, like, 2014. But the each of the one-shots is about a previous recurrence in their pantheon. And they were... Did you read, like, the foreword and stuff for I this? Did. So, what they say in that is that those were coming out during the run of the series, uh, but are here collected in one chunk towards the end... I think, I mean, you can read them, you can insert them where they belong in the story frame, but because they are one-shots, and because they are mostly historical pantheon stories, you can read them by themselves, and it doesn't spoil any of the story or give you details about stories that you haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. I will say that I kind of wish... That they had spread them out throughout the other uh, collected volumes rather than bunching them all up here. Because I rem- when we got to the big reveal of the severed heads, which if, they, if you've not listened to the other episodes, this is going to sound crazy. Uh, but when we got to the big reveal of the severed, severed heads and it was like, oh, Lucifer's there. And we were like, wow, Lucifer really hasn't been around since like the first volume. I think that... One of the, and maybe this wasn't even intentional, but I think one of the things that this these specials could have done is keep that character in our minds because Lucifer's all over all of these. A Lucifer is heavily involved in each of these one-shots. And I think they would have been maybe more effective if we had gotten these little reminders of like, hey, remember Lucifer? Remember what Lucifer was like? Throughout the series leading up to the big reveal that Lucifer is still alive and is a severed head. I think the only one that is mentioned in the main story is the 1923 recurrence. Well, I think there's an offhand reference to the um, to one of these as well. There, there is one point where someone's like, "Oh, like, oh, well, and what?" Like Blake or somebody said, makes some offhand reference to like, "Oh, what happened to the something something Lucifer?" I think they're, they're the nun Lucifer is referenced offhand at one point 
I think also, I mean, without getting, we'll get into each individual story. I think what's interesting is, is that there are gods that occur in these one shots that aren't in the main plot point of the most recent, the 2000 recurrence, which is what the series is based on. But I think there's also, you get to see there's sort of a backstory for each of the gods that recur. And I don't know if Anaki selects the gods or the gods select themselves or it's randomized. But I, I think, think it's she, pretty clear at this point that she selects them. I think she has her favorites. And you can tell some... Well, we know Minerva comes back every time, but there's always some manifestation of Amaratsu. There's always some manifestation of Anaki, of uh, Inanna. There's always a ball. I think... Okay. I think you're maybe right that she has her favorites. I definitely think there's like a broader pool that she can pick from. I think the reason, I think it's like not. I well, let me. I think the reason it seems like there are some that recur more than others is because one, like some of them are our main characters of the series, so it makes sense. Like, let's go back and see like the other Lucifer's and stuff. But I also think the 1920s recurrence is supposed to be like a dry run for what she tried to do. Right. In the most recent one. That's why there's so many that overlap. Because, like, she's trying that again. I also, one of the things I found was very confusing for me is that it's not as clear who the gods are in some of the stories. And it's not as clear as who they're supposed to be based on. This is kind of really confusing in the 1831, Mm -hmm. where you know that they're romantic writers and poets, but it's hard to know which one is which and which one is which god. I think I I I have them figured out. Right. But what I was going to say is, if you go to the Wikipedia page, you can go to a list of the gods that are in different recurrences, and you can read and find out who they are. Oh, okay. I didn't do that. So you can tell me if I'm right or not with... When I try to guess them. Well, I just kind of, I was, we'll talk about it more in the 1923 recurrence because I have mixed feelings about that one. But I feel like some of the gods, I guess, are suited specifically to the story that they're telling. Mm -hmm. So they don't necessarily turn up in the main story platform, but they're relevant to the story that they're telling. I almost have the opposite problem with these past pantheons where I feel like they're too much one obvious person. Whereas, like, the current ones are all kind of a mix of a bunch of different figures. So it's like, we talked about, like, Ball's kind of like Kanye and Jay-Z, but he's also kind of like a football player, and he's got kind of like a politician thing going on. And he's not really, like, the biggest, obviously Kanye's, like, the biggest, most obvious influence with the red suit and the chain. Like, it's very much, like, power era Kanye. But they're all kind of like a mix-up of, like, a bunch of different people. Whereas I feel like a lot of these, it's like, Oh, okay. It's just Ezra Pound. Well, I think it's kind of easier to do that in a historical setting than in a contemporary setting. So you can say like, oh, yes, Minerva is Shirley Temple. Mm. And then you can base her appearance on that. But I think like for a contemporary, they're trying to basically, the, the characters are sort of like ideas, like you said, or concepts that take a lot of different types of celebrity personalities in there Mm -hmm. and i feel like the story is more about like the cult of like i was gonna say personality but that's not exactly Mm -hmm. but you know what i mean like the cult of like celebrity and so like ball is a a kanye west type of character 
and he has some of the you know physical and mannerisms of that but then to go back in the past and say oh yes she's virginia wolf i mean that's pretty heavy-handed in the that's what I'm saying. I'm mean, like they're they're the my I my main problem with the older ones is they're just a lot of them just feel like they're just a pastiche of one person. But that might also be sort of a crutch because if you're reading this now and you're contemporary and you're like, okay, I know what a Kanye West kind of person is, mm-hmm. you might not be like, oh, I know what a Virginia Woolf kind of person is. So it has to be Virginia Woolf because you can't be like. Oh, I made a character, like an androgynous writer, you know. Yeah. You wouldn't be like, hmm, hmm, could this be Virginia Woolf? You wanted to know because you don't, you're not contemporary in that culture and you might not get all the clues. Yeah, and I guess to play devil's advocate, I think there's potentially an idea here where it's like, you know, we see these more current gods as being a more of a mix of like a bunch of different people. But it's like, maybe over time... Only one or two of those people will be remembered. And so people in the future might look back on Ball and just be like, oh, he's like Kanye West. Because all the other references we're thinking of have faded out of memory. So maybe, like, that's what's going on here. Where it's like, if we were, you know, like, it's to looks to us like it's just this one person. Because all the other people who are kind of like that but slightly different, we don't remember. Because we just remember the most famous one. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, like... Some of them do work like that. Like, the 1920s Woden is, like, he's not any specific... I mean, he's clearly supposed to be Goebbels, but, like, it's like, oh, he's kind of like a mashup of, like, a bunch of German expressionist directors and also Nosferatu or Count Orlock. But I think going back, the farther you go back, the harder it is to find, like, cultural icons that can be represented as these people. I think it works best when you get to the 1831s because then you start to have these... It becomes this sort of thing where the celebrity... There's a different type of celebrity. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, people know Lord Byron and they know Shelley, but they're not, like, celebrities in the same way that, you know, Britney Spears is a celebrity now. Yeah. And also, I think, like, back then, it wasn't as much chance of like this sort of saturation that we have now so unless you were like a reader you might not know Virginia Woolf or unless mm-hmm. you were in that theater scene you might not know some of the other characters or if, if you were interested in art you might not know that this guy's German expressionism <laughs> you know like yeah uh okay well let's, let's get into, well I mean, do you have anything else to say in preamble or do you want to just get into talking about the issue well, no, I just, I think what I was saying, it's interesting that this sort of cult of celebrity can be traced back even to the time of, like, the Holy Roman Empire, which is where the first one-shot starts. Yeah, I think this is maybe, I think this is might be the most interesting of the one-shots. So this, this first one-shot is set in, it's called Imperial Face, so presumably it would have... I, I mean, they tell you specifically where to look, where you should slot them in, but I assume that this came out around when the Imperial phase came out. And I think it's mostly there to serve as an example of, like, what that means and what that can look like. I also think that these two of these stories explore the concept of what happens if the god doesn't die in the two years. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is a perfect example of that sort of 
what happens when Anaki is not successful in completing this cycle. They also, I think this one and the next one help explain Anaki's methodology at the beginning of the series. Like, it becomes very clear after reading both of these why she killed Lucifer first this time. Well, you know what I was going to say? It seems like Lucifer is usually targeted to be the first. And I guess you're right because he or she, depending on the manifestation, is the most troublesome to her specifically. So this one is set in uh, 455 AD, which puts it at the time of the sacking of Rome by the Vandals. And our main character is a manifestation of Lucifer, who was an actor who, you know, in Roman society would have been lower class, who instead of embracing the role of Lucifer, abandons the role of Lucifer to try and embody Julius Caesar and attempts to take, defeats the Vandals, or at least a contingent of the Vandals, and then attempts to retake Rome and re, or like strengthen the Roman Empire. And then... He's warned continually by Anarchy about the dangers of linger of like clinging to his godhood and eventually dips into the imperial phase and fucks everything up. Uh, he's also lovers with this recurrence's uh, manifestation of Dionysus slash Bacchus. Right. And then at the end, uh, basically just sort of burns out his own godhood. And dies, and then is uh, given a pagan burial by Anarchy, who then has a conversation with the king of the Vandals. I, other gods that are in this, but may not necessarily be shown, but may be mentioned or referenced, Baal is in it, Inanna is in it, Mithras, which I guess is one, only the for one time of the occurrence of Mithras. At least all that we see in Miner- this. Minerva... Morai, Persephone, and then there's other goddesses and gods that are mentioned, but not. I don't think Persephone identified. shows up in this issue, but we see this recurrence of Persephone in the big montage in the previous volume, right? Yeah, so like Inanna in this is mentioned as like so these one shots really get into the idea that the Wicked and the Divine is kind of an alt history because we find out in this that Attila the Hun is defeated in this universe by Inanna. Fucking him to death. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, we also get, like, uh, the King of the Vandals, I forget his name, Jesseric or something like that. He talks about seeing Ball in Carthage. And this is, like, the beginning of this idea that comes up a couple times in these one-shots of, like, what the relationship between the Pantheon and the recurrences and Christianity because we get, like, firmly established, like, which was clear, like, from the way people talked and act in the in the main series. But it's made very explicit here that, like, the history of Christianity, seemingly largely as we understand it in our world, still happened here. But it's seemingly a completely separate thing from the Pantheon. I think what's interesting here, and we talk about this a lot when we, do, we did the Sandman series, is this depiction of Lucifer in The Wicked and the Divine... And the same thing in Sandman is not depicted as the devil. No. But as an as a god that is separate. So it's kind of like a still the same balance of good and evil, mm-hmm. but it's not the 
Christian sort of manifestation of what Lucifer is. Yeah, well, I think both of those, Sandman and this, and then Lucifer, the series the, itself, all kind of tag on this idea that Lucifer is less evil, a being of evil and more of like a a rebel. Well, I think also, don't forget that Terry Pratchett sort of had the same ideology sprinkled through his writing about... Oh, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, so... It's kind of a more like a humanist view of what Lucifer is. Well, I mean, you can trace all of this back to Paradise Lost, to be honest. And probably even some stuff before that. I mean, look at fucking, you know, historical sculptures of Lucifer. Like, they've they've all... like we For a very long time, humanity has thought Lucifer was a sexy, cool dude. Uh, and it has permeated all sorts of art. Well, I the, think in, in The Wicked and the Divine, Lucifer is always a sexy dude in the same sort of androgyny that David Bowie is a sexy dude. Like, no matter what the manifestation of Lucifer that you get, that that entity is always, like, highly sexualized, highly ambiguous, sort of well, gender-neutral yeah. kind of... Well, the next one is Equal very... opportunity predator. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so like the reason I brought up the Christianity thing is that when Anarchy and... Man, I'm going to actually check what his name is. It is... Jelserik. Jelserik, yeah. Who is an actual historical figure. Yeah, yeah. He was the king of the Vandals when they sacked Rome. Yes. And he kind of looks like Sean Bean in this. Yeah, he... he <laughs> when he gets to the... He, he looks like he stepped out of Vikings on the History Channel. Uh, but they have this conversation and he ta- he's talking about seeing Ball perform in Carthage... And he brings up this idea of where he's like, like, I saw him die. Like, these gods all die. And he was like, well, he can't be a god then. But then he he draws a specific parallel between these gods that are doomed to die and Christ. I think this which is... Which is interesting that it's not been brought up previous to this. I think it's also interesting that when Anaki at the end has the conversation with the king of the Vandals... You get this idea, this sort of beginning of the seed of, like, these gods being, like, celebrities. Mm-hmm. And I also think it was interesting that the sort of, the whole story is about Lucifer who doesn't surrender his godhood and is not assassinated within the two years. And he decides he wants to become the Holy Roman Emperor. Mm-hmm. and No, no. He specifically doesn't want to be the Holy Roman Emperor because he rejects Christianity. Right. He wants to be... The classical Roman The Emperor. classical Roman. He wants, yeah, to bring back this the Roman Empire mm-hmm. itself. But as he goes along, I guess the the sort of result of him extending his godhood is that he goes through this sort of madness. The imperial phase. Right. And he becomes increasingly more paranoid and more violent and more unreasonable and there's like a really gruesome kind of I love this part I knew you would as soon as I saw (laughs) it he at one point he attacks the senate and there's a massacre and he takes one of the senators and he turns him into a harp and he plays his like guts and bones as an instrument yeah and he keeps comparing himself to like Nero and Nero Playing, you know, the whole... Fiddling while Rome burned. Which, like, that gets into one of the core themes of this issue, where he says that, you know, to an outsider, Nero's crime is is fiddling while, while Rome burned. But to Romans, 
the crime is fiddling at all. And the thing that comes up continually throughout this that seems to be sort of the, one of the core motivations of Lucifer slash Julius in this is the way Roman society and culture treats and marginalizes and exploits artists. I think that might be a comment on society in general. Yeah. Because it's kind of clear in the other eight volumes that there are people who think that the gods are sort of like lowbrow entertainment. Well, yeah, a lot. The, the last one shot on this is very much about the conflict between like elitist attitudes towards art and more populist attitudes towards art. But he's getting at this idea of like the the lack of respect and recognition for artists, and the idea that he's allowed to on stage embody this emperor, but off stage he is like a he is a pariah and that the rules are completely different for the upper class than they are for him. Like he talks about that. There's a scene where he's in bed with Bacchus and they're talking about how like, you know, there's all this rules and decorum. And it was like, if we were doing this and I was an emperor, it would be cool. But if they found us doing it now, I would get arrested. And I think it's back. I think it gets that like relationship between like art and the consumer and between art and the person explaining art is like a continual thing throughout here we talked a lot about this the like idea of like anarchy as the record label and this is like a sort of broader take on that concept of like the conflict between the artist and the person who's exploiting their art which in here is the like roman imperial society which uses the artist to mythologize itself and then degrades the artist in return and then this artist destroys rome with his art because i mean essentially his whole reign as emperor is a performance i was just gonna say it's the ultimate performance piece but i thought it was interesting except for the gruesome part where he made a harp out of human being yeah i thought that was cool and i liked it He has a really neat design, too. He's got, like, this, like, blood-red face paint and, like, purple robes and a halo. It's very different than all the other takes on Lucifer that we've seen so far. But I think you're right. I think that a lot of these stories, one common underlying theme is that Anaki is learning and honing how she wants each cycle to go. Yeah. So... Do you want to move on to the next one? Yeah, the next one is kind of creepy. Let me me credit the artist before we move on. Uh, The artist on this issue is Andre Orejo? Orejo? I'm not entirely sure how to say his name. Uh, Matt Wilson is also the colorist on this one and the next issue. Yeah. So the next one is the 1373 occurrence. Yeah. So the Black Plague has been going on for 22 years when this starts. And... um, this issue is almost entirely about this recurrence's version of Lucifer, who is a nun. Uh, a very, she's a very self-loathing character. Excuse me. Yeah, I think the only Lucifer is in in here is a nun, and Minerva is in here, which is like a twist. Yeah, and then Persephone is mentioned as being her head being removed. I think that's, again, something from the montage. Right. And then Anaki is an old woman who's bedridden 
Which is, I think, why she has Minerva working with her so early on yeah. in the recurrence. Well, no, this is late. This is after it should have ended. It's kind of the idea here. Because this Lucifer is, like, is specifically notable for surpassing the two years, basically through sheer force of will, it seems like. Or faith in a power greater than herself, which is maybe... You know, something that the other Lucifers couldn't really manage. I think this is weird. I yeah. know that there... I mean, I don't know if this is because I was raised Catholic, but there's this sort of obsession with, like, a nun that's also a devil. And this yeah. is kind of like, she's Lucifer, but she has horns, and she's wearing this sort of medieval um, nun's habit, yeah. and she's got these red and yellow eyes. And it's kind of like... I don't know. So she's untouched by the plague. She's she's a nun, but everybody thinks she's like a demon child. And she's self-loathing. And she uh, is sent to check on this town that is being afflicted with the plague. And she meets a girl with strange skin deformities. Who tells her that she's got to come meet with this... She's got to show her something. And she leads her to the town. There's Then there's a sequence where the town is being... Not, not like besieged, but like inhabited by a, a gang of anti-Semitic flagellants. Right. Uh, and she well, gives them a speech that's basically like, you know, this is stupid and none of your suffering is going to get you into heaven and you're like a bad person no matter how many times you hit yourself with a whip. And then she shows her flagellation scars to them. And then she's led into this house or hut or something where anarchy is laying bedridden with the plague and they have a conversation she takes anarchy's confession basically is what the rest of the issue is and anarchy basically is like uh i brought the plague here the world is moving too fast and i was having a hard time coping with it a previous incarnation of the pantheon created the plague we also find out through lucifer's conversation that basically what happened with her was that her mother died in childbirth and her dad was like a abusive and called her lucifer and told her she was the devil and then when anarchy it was sending minerva out to gather people to be the new pantheon she brought her to anarchy and before anarchy could even say anything she was like i'm lucifer because she was already convinced of this fact because of her abusive father and then she became lucifer well i think it kind of speaks to two things about what's happening during the plague one is this sort of concept that, and, you know, we see it today during our pandemic. There are people who believe that if you are good enough and holy enough, you will not be struck down by this plague. And these are what the flagellants are kind of a cult that believes that. And then secondly, it sort of deals with this sort of um, religious fervor that people have, that mm -hmm. some people like, someone like Joan of Arc might have where their religious identity and their self-identity are so melded that they give themselves this sort of projection of being, like, a holy figure. Yeah. And I think that's what Lucifer does. I mean, despite the fact that she considers herself to be Lucifer and not a saint or some kind of holy prophet, but it's the same thing. Yeah. And then, then she kills Anarchy, and then, like, the how she's in... Catches on fire and Lucifer walks out and then is burnt out by her own godhood or by her own will or something. At the end, it's unclear. And she dies. And then the last page is Minerva walking off with a big sack of heads. 
<laughs> of course. I really like the sort of coloring and the artwork of this issue, even though I kind of cringe a lot with this like heavily Catholic kind of uh, storytelling. Yeah. But I kind of like the really sparse use of like color and there's like tones of blue and gray and green. I think that and like contrasted against this really stark black and red and yellow, which I think is very atmospheric. And I kind of like this sort of mimic of like Lucifer with her habit compared to Anarchy, who has this long gray hair and this blue blanket, sort of mimicking this sort of religious order concept. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So, um, while we're talking about the art, let me me shout out the artist. So, And she uh, has Anarchy's knife. Yeah. The stone knife that she had in the previous... Well, there's a part where Anakin's like, that's my knife. And Lucifer's like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so Ryan Kelly is the artist here. Matthew Wilson is still the colorist, but uh, on both this and the previous issue, uh, he was working with D. Cuniff as the flatter, who's like the person who prepares the pages for the colorist. Which I think gives both of these issues kind of, I don't know, but if, if both of these issues do have a slightly different feel color-wise than the rest of the series, I wonder if that's because he's working with somebody else. I also think it's kind of... A nod to how good of a colorist he is is that he can use almost two different styles and two different palettes to create completely different types of stories, which I think is nice. I mean, his coloring has been really important to the series as a whole going on. And then he really gets a chance to show off in these uh, one-shots. But yeah, so I think what we get here is like, one, we get another example of a time that things went disastrously. We get, I think, another... We get a illustration of why Anarchy doesn't do more shit in the time between recurrences. Because she tried to fuck with the world here by releasing the plague to slow things down, and it went horribly for her. And she got it herself. Right. And so... I think, like, that's, like, one of the things a lot of these one is doing is they're helping us understand exactly why Anarchy was doing things the way she was doing them in the main series which is nice i also think that i I don't understand why anaki is not she seems for someone who created this whole concept she seems sort of like inept in a lot of ways well her sister talks about that in the previous volume where they make the rules together and her sister's like yeah she's not like creative like she doesn't she can only really build on what other people are doing so i think that's like why things keep getting so fucked up is she doesn't she she is kind of inept i think she doesn't really know what she's doing and like because it's contingent on her essentially writing a story like each recurrence she has to plot out like a thriller basically and she can't really do it very well and it keeps fucking up or it or like sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and this was an instance where it didn't work and i also think we're like slowly narrowing in on this idea where it's like the gods, it seems like over time the gods become less and less spread out because over time she realizes it's harder and harder to do her job if they're not near each other. Because it's like this, she tries to do a thing on like a global scale here and it goes disastrously. And then like with each recurrence, it seems like the gods show up closer and closer together. And I like that over time we kind of get this explanation for like, why are they all in England in 2014? And it's like, okay, because that makes them easier to manage. Yeah, because I think in, like, in the 1831 and even the 1923 one, they're still kind of spread out, but they 
have been gathered together. Well, yeah, I think that's like when I was talking about like, oh, the 20s one is like a dry run. It's like they're spread out and then she gathers them together. And then she just starts with them together the next time because then she realizes that makes that's the easiest way to do it. Uh, yeah, what else do I, is there anything else I have to say about this this nun one? I mean, I guess we get the example that gods can, through their own like will and work, do things that Anarchy doesn't think they should be able to do. Yeah, and I think as the occurrences go on, the character, the beings that become the gods themselves... Especially in the 1831 and the 1923, maybe because they're more based on existing historical figures, but they're more willful. Yeah. And I think going back to the new one, they're just average people at this point. Mm-hmm. So. So, yeah. The the next one is set in 1831. Uh, Stephanie Hans is the artist here. I believe she also does the coloring because Matthew Wilson's not credited as the colorist on this. I think we've seen her stuff before in the that you know that one volume that had all the fill-in artists. Yes, I believe she was one of them. Uh, she her art style is a huge departure from McAlvey, more so than the other two artists we've seen. I think it works really well though in this episode in this issue because they're supposed to be sort of romantic figures, and I well, think they're literally sort of, romantic. Yeah, but I think like her sort of lush style and coloring and sort of the. The way she depicts the clothing and the sort of hair and everything. I think it fits very well in this sort of style. It's very sort of dim and kind of Yeah, and there's lots of like smears of light like across the frame and stuff, which I think is a really neat effect that she does here. So yeah, this is the this is the Frankenstein issue. Right. And it's the same thing. It's sort of like based on the story of how Frankenstein was created. There this one has a lot of the gods are in it. Um, Hades is in it. And do you want to sort of guess who they are while we go through them? Okay, let's see. Uh, Morpheus is Coleridge, right? Right. Uh, Check. The Morrigan is Shelley, Percy Shelley. Yep. Uh, Lucifer is Yates, right? No, no, he's Byron. Frank, uh, Hades is Yates, right? Yeah, Lucifer is Byron, and Hades is Keats. Keats. Oh, Keats that's why. No, no, that's why. <laughs> you got your Smith songs. No, that's literally what it was. Because <laughs> I knew who I was. Uh, that's who I was trying to say, but I got mixed up because of the Smith song. Uh, Odin is uh, Mary Shelley, right? Definitely. And then I can't remember her name, but her her sister, something Claremont. That's who Inanna, Inanna is. Inanna is Mary Shelley's stepsister, yeah. Claire Claremont. Uh, is there anyone else? Oh, Edgar Allan Poe is Toth, right? Right. Because uh, he gets killed in a murder at the Rue Morgue. Yes. <laughs> and then it's also like a thing with the heart and weighing the heart, because that's mm-hmm. what Toth does. Toth. Is there another one? Hestia is Jane Austen. Oh, uh, I don't even remember her showing up in this. I know they make a reference to some gods. What is it, like the sisters of the Parsonage? Which I guess are supposed to be like the Bronte sisters, right? Uh... The go- yeah, unknown goddesses described as the three lonely sisters is the Bronte sisters. And there's one where the Angel of Soho, who gets a bunch of different names, who I guess is supposed to be William Blake, because those are all William Blake references. Well, it says Paran, oh, wait, based on Pushkin. Oh yeah, he dies in Petrograd or right. something. Wait, is the Angel of Soho in this one or in yes. the next one? No, there, it's in here. Yeah. It says, unknown god who went by the Angel of Soho, Urizen, and... 
orc something else, right? Herman, Inthurman. Yeah, those are all those are all William Blake. Right, references. they're from the or at least I know a couple of them are William Blake references. So I assume the rest are also William Blake references. Uh, am I missing anybody? The nurse says there's. It says one unknown god or goddess deceased by the end of the recurrence, likely Minerva, who murders Anaki and takes her persona. Well, yeah, that's just a, like a logical extrapolation from what we know about how these work. Yeah, so it's kind of the story of like how the story of Frankenstein was developed. There, all the gods are in a chalet in Lake Geneva, mm-hmm. and they decide they're going to tell themselves horror stories and nutty hijinks ensue. Yeah, so they're they're all going to tell horror stories, and then uh, it's mostly just them bitching about how bad their lives are, uh, and then. Lucifer pulls out Hades' severed hand, which he apparently got from Anarchy. And I thought he was going to pull out the head. I really did. Yeah, I thought he was going to have the head too. But he pulls out the hand and says that they're going to start a ritual to raise the dead. And, you know, the Morrigan has sort of that power, but can't do it. And the Morrigan and Odin, you know, they're a couple. And they've had, she, when she's explaining how bad her life is in the guise of a horror story, she explains that they've tried for kids multiple times. And every time the kid just dies inexplicably. And the Morrigan is not able to raise the child from the dead. But they're going to try this ritual to resurrect Hades or something and it goes in a totally unexpected way and creates this, like, new being. Obviously, it's, like, invoking Frankenstein. And to to stabilize it, Odin basically fuses with it. And then we also get the reveal uh, that now in this new ascended state or whatever, Odin, real like, knows that uh, her sister's been killing her kids at the behest of Anarchy. Yeah, I think this is sort of a nod to, like, what, with Baal, where there's, like, a child sacrifice to mm-hmm. be made to to get God powers. Yeah. I really like the sort of Woden look that she has. I think that's kind of, like, it's, like, very romantic style, but then also it has this sort of steampunk aesthetic. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like, a little steampunk-y, a little Art Nouveau-y. She's wearing, like, a flowing green dress, and she has, like, a headdress with a, the magnifying glass on it. Yeah, I like all the designs in this. I mean, a lot of them are just kind of like, oh, that, like, oh, it's just, you know, it's just Percy Shelley with his hair is even more unkempt and there's a raven on his shoulder. But I like, though, the one thing I do like about this is that instead of the sort of, I was going to say traditional, but I guess it's really not traditional, but this sort of kind of retelling of the story, the birth of Frankenstein, puts a lot more emphasis on the input of, like, Shelley on his wife's work. Yeah. And I think this sort of tells it from a sort of feminist view. She is her own creator and creates her own instead mm-hmm. of being influenced by these men. Yeah, And I think yeah. that sort of... It, for To be a creative woman at that time, you were still under sort of the manacles of like ex- expectations of society. Mm-hmm. And these women are sort of modern feminist women that are not controlled by the whims of their husbands or whatever. But it also is like, it's like, it, I like that it doesn't abandon the, um, like this thing that's about them creating like a literal Frankenstein monster. 
Like, it still kind of follows the shape of events of her writing the story, where it's like they're gathered, and it's like Lucifer and the, and the Morrigan try to do this thing, and it's not working. And then she steps in to be like, okay, like, this is how you do it, and, like, one-ups them in in creating this new being out of the dead. But it, it costs her her identity or something. But the end of the story, she walks off across a frozen lake, and that's it. So I'm wondering, like, do you think the creature is going to show up in the next volume? It's apparently still out there. I think it's interesting that it, I think there's always that sort of it's the same thing with the novel. There's always that expectation that the creature could appear. It's mm. the same thing like when we talk about a mech suit. Yes. <laughs> well, I was going to say it's the same thing like when we when you talk about like Destroyer where it's like that's a perfect example of like you're kind of like the characters in the book are kind of like holding their breath like is the monster is is the creature going to come back? Mm-hmm. You know. The only thing I think is interesting is that not once did they even use the term Prometheus, which I think would have been, a, I guess maybe that was too heavy-handed yeah, in maybe. the story. Yeah, it's, so, it's almost surprising. I guess Prometheus is not a god. I was going to say, it's, but then again, neither is like Mirmir or whatever. Yeah. I was going to say, it's almost surprising that one of them isn't Prometheus, but I guess that would have been weird. I also think it's weird that they have William Blake in it. I mean, he's, he's like dead, I think, by the time the story starts. Right, but I feel like he's more like in the 1700s. No, no, no. You just, you just, because he's, that's, he's more contemporary with them. Do you think? Yeah. Let me actually check. Well, I mean, he died in 1827. Yeah, it is a little weird, but I guess, I mean, they established. He would have been an old man at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that is a little weird. I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't bother him because I like, well, I mean, I picked up on all those references immediately. I love William Blake. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right. It is a little weird. Yeah, why wasn't it like, I don't know, they could have been any number of people it could have been. But I guess they wanted to put those references in, I don't know. I also thought it was weird, I mean, we're going to be talking it's about... It's possible, the, though... Oh, never mind, say your thing. I was going to say, we're going to be talking about the 1923 recurrence, but I was thinking to myself, as like, like, this is obviously centered on, like, England and such. Like, why didn't they have, like, a Sherlock Holmes kind of inspired... Isn't that sort of what in this in this i don't know yeah. she's got a big magnifying glass on her head <laughs> yeah that is weird i i don't know i mean i guess like there's possible that one of them that's well, there's a bunch of them that are already dead at the start of this so it's possible that one of them is but i feel like the 1923 recurrence is 100 percent an agatha christie novel and i feel like why didn't they do like a sherlock holmes themed recurrence that's what i think would have been better than this boring agatha christie story says uh, a woman who just read 93 agatha christie novels in a row yeah you want to talk about <laughs> so well no so i wanted to i saw a couple things i wanted to say about the, the frankenstein one yeah definitely do you think that the idea here is that when odin fuses with the creature and walks off she takes the odin powers with her and that's why the next two odins we see are both phonies because she doesn't seem to have a mirror that she's stealing her powers from like there's no implication that she is anything but just woden in this like and she doesn't die she becomes something else and then leaves so i wonder if that if their god's powers are like a source that just goes back and is replenished and that odin power is just out there connected to this ice creature so that this 
like you said, if this creature comes back, this creature has been Woden powered since 1923. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That's because, like, this, the next one we're about to talk about has a Woden in it, and it's very clear that he is basically the prototype for John Blake, or for David Blake. Right. Um, this has a lot of sort of one to one linear matches with the that's modern. That's what I'm saying. It's like, a, I think it is like this was the dry run for the next one. This was her, she was attempting something here and then she refines the formula for the next recurrence. Was there something? No, oh, well, okay. I was going to say, like, we also, again, get another example of the gods doing something in in this one, in, in the, the Frankenstein one, the nun one, and this one we're about to talk about all have an, other examples of the gods doing stuff outside of the scope of what Anarchy says they should be able to do, which I think is all sort of setting up for whatever's happening with Laura at this moment in the story. Yeah, and I think that the 1923 recurrence is sort of similar to the other ones in that it has a mix of sort of one-off gods that only show up in this story because they suit the sort of... And they suit them even more perfectly in the 1923 ones than the other stories. And then a mix of the gods that are currently in the modern recurrence. So so this one has Amoratsu, Amun-Ra... Ba, Dionysus, Lucifer, Minerva, the Morrigan, Neptune, the Norns, Uh, Set, Woden, I think that's it. Oh, Susanu. Yeah. Set, Set, Susanu, Woden, and Persephone. Yeah. uh, The artist on this one is, I believe the name is pronounced Odd Coke? Odd Cock? I mean, it's probably Odd Coke. They don't get a lot to do compared to other artists. But yeah, I mean, if you want to do the thing, the rundown, I think that the thing that's going on here is Ball is Ezra Pound. Right. But that one I think is very... Well, it's a combination honest. of T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. Oh, I got way more Ezra Pound than anything because so he's did a I. fascist. So did I. And he looks like Ezra Pound. Uh, Amaterasu is some silent movie actress. Right. Louise Brooks, based uh, on Louise Brooks. That makes sense. Lucifer is F. Scott Fitzgerald. Of course. Susano is Charlie Chaplin or and or Buster Keaton. Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. He references, he makes like oblique references to both of their movies. He says something about, makes a joke about the great dictator at one point. He looks like Buster Keaton. Yeah. Um, the Morgan, I guess, is James Joyce. He's yeah Irish. He talks like in a weird way that breaks the formatting of the text. Coat. He has an eye patch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Neptune is Hemingway. Yes. Well, that's maybe the funniest joke in this is how much he hates adjectives. <laughs> The Norns are, one of them is definitely George Orwell. I guess the other ones are supposed to be Huxley and H.G. Wells? Yep, nailed it. They're definitely all supposed to be sci-fi writers. The Orwell one is very obvious because there's a part where he gets killed and it says God's boots stepping on a face briefly. <laughs> uh, Set, I mean, I guess she's used, you were talking about her being like Virginia Woolf, which uh, yeah. I guess is true, but she's more less like Virginia Woolf herself and more like her character Orlando. Like she makes all these references to her past lives and stuff. I think she is almost like the sort of she's like an amalgamation of like the writers of that the female writers of that time. But I think it's pretty clearly meant to be Virginia Woolf because there's this like one of the plot points is like a giant lighthouse, and at some point she says a person needs a room of their own, but there's not enough rooms for everyone or some shit like yeah. that. And that's definitely like. She's maybe also supposed to be Ayn Rand? 
Does that work timeline wise? I don't know, but yeah, I, I kind of see that. Um, Amon Ra's, I, I guess Langston Hughes. He's he's a Harlem Renaissance poet. The most famous one is Langston Hughes. So I'm gonna assume that's who he is. Uh, Woden is like I guess F. W. Murnau, but also Goebbels. Yeah, and also think, Count Orlock from Nosferatu. I think that's all of them, yes. Uh, Minerva is Shirley Temple, and then Dionysus is Picasso. Right. And Minerva is Shirley Temple. We do. Yeah. Um, the, the, Picasso, the Dionysus one, they make it very, like, because he's not around for very long oh, in the story, Persef- they make it very obvious very quickly. Like, he literally turns into Cubist paintings. I think um, Persephone is supposed to be Josephine Baker. Yeah, but she's she's not in this story. That's another thing that's just from the montage. Yeah. But this is the recurrence we've seen the most of outside of the uh, the current one. Let's talk about one thing before we get oh, into the yeah. story. So, so I, in my notes, I made, I put TLDR. And one of the things that sort of kind of, I was really excited about this one because I thought like when it said 1923, I was like, oh, these are going to be some like really iconic cultural figures from the 1920s and it is and then as i was started to read it it was kind of like this is like an agatha christie novel and anarchy is obviously supposed to be like miss marple or or like perot probably more like perot because it's like sort of a, a a mansion mystery that happens yeah she's like funk like not function structurally in the text she is the perot figure because she's like the old outsider and she's like alone in her room but then she's actually the bad guy one of the things that I found really difficult with this, and one of the reasons why it was my least favorite one, is that there are enormous blocks of text, which I kind of feel like <laughs> chop the, the like movement of the story, like because like the it was a lot of prose, and the prose was sort of like it's mostly prose, and it was the part where I was telling you like what was happening. And then there was these short one or two pages of images that were just sort of like action-y. And it kind of like, there was like a disconnect between the... It wasn't like a story where the illustrations fed the story. Mm-hmm. They were like two separate things. I am I have mixed feelings on this. So let's just say right now, like, there is a, there's a lineage... Oh, God. I, I didn't mean to sound so nerdy when I said something mm-hmm. that nerdy. There's a lineage of prose pieces in comics and it goes back all the way back to like the start of comic books basically a lot of times i don't know the specifics but there was like a way to get around certain regulations involving the newsstand and how you shipped your books where if you put a certain amount of prose text in there you got classified as like a magazine or something so lots of old comics have text text pieces like if you ever go back and read i think like a reprint of like action comics number one there's like a text one or two text pieces in there like to get basically to get them i think the idea was so they would be classified the same way as pulps right and lots of writers like to experiment with text pieces in their comics a lot of british writers specifically love doing it for some reason or not just even british writers like grant morrison's scottish and he has like i think he's scottish he's got like a whole issue of his batman run that's text and I don't, I think it's kind of annoying, basically every time it happens. Because you're sitting down to read a comic, right? And no matter how good the prose is, which I think is actually pretty good in this, I, I think these are well written, it's always gonna, you're always gonna like it less than you would have in isolation because it's gonna be a barrier between 
you and the cool art you actually sat down to appreciate. I mean, especially, I think, in this, because the art is fantastic. Yeah, like, I really like the art in the issue. this issue. And I felt like, if you couldn't tell the story in without all the prose, then you should have pruned the story. Or you should have made more. You should have made it into like a little mini-series. Yeah. Because I wanted to see like a lot of like... like I wanted to see like Neptune is Hemingway. And mm-hmm. I wanted to see like Pablo Picasso. And I wanted to see more of like the beginning of this sort of bringing technology into the pantheon. You know, like Lucifer builds this sort of smart castle but it's kind of powered by these projectors and this sort of kind of a nod to like metropolis and sort of like these kind of robot butler i wanted to see more like art nouveau inspired and some of the characters that you don't see like susano like you don't see them in other recurrences so you want to see more of them and i felt like to kind of really lean really heavily into the sort of agatha christie sort of style there's more prose than I think they actually needed. Yeah, there's weird bits of things that we only get to see in the prose. Like we don't ever really get to see the robots in the in the comics part of it. Uh, but I think that the reason I said I had mixed feelings about it is like one, I do think the prose is well written, and there's like funny parts, and there's a lot of characterization packed into them that I think you would have. They would have struggled to fit into an entirely comics issue of similar length. But the other reason I'm mixed on it is I get what he's doing here artistically. Like what I think there is a real artistic reason behind alternating between the text and the comics. Uh, I don't know if it totally works. But I think the idea is there by the end of the story, we get the the realization that a lot of this has been about this conflict between elitism and populism, and specifically in art. As typified by these writer gods who have made a a Faustian pact with Woden, the fascist movie god, and the more sort of populist art gods as typified by, you know, Susano and Amaterasu, who are supposed to be like movie actors, and then Amun-Ra, who is a writer who exists outside of their elitist, racist conceptions of what art is. So the story alternates between prose and the comics and the comics part is specifically rendered to invoke a silent film like there are throughout these and i actually think this is a cooler uh sort of formalistic play than the text pieces but throughout there are black panels that are like title cards from silent films right so it's like alternating between like here here's like this like portrayal of this populist visual art of film reinterpreted through comics and then here's the sort of more elitist form of prose writing, but structured in a more populist format of a mystery novel. So it's like the, the switching back and forth and the way these things are presented, like is there to show this tension and to kind of illustrate just how wrong the villains are, I think. Uh, but like part of my problem with it is one, no, no matter how well done or interesting the idea is, it's still like an, Makes it's still like kind of annoying to have to read a bunch of text when you want to read a comic, and also I think it's a little weird that the text pieces continue after all of the elitist gods are dead, and the comics pieces continue after all of the movie gods are dead. So I don't really know what's going on there. Uh, 
I also think it's sort of a deliberate decision to use prose to tell you about something that's visual and then to use visuals to tell you about something that's prose. Yeah. So, I mean, they they go in a lot of detail about, like, the movies, Mm -hmm. but they don't really... I mean, that's something that they could show you in one of the panels. And then they kind of go on and talk... They show you, like... There's a weird scene where one of them manifests a train. I thought that ruled. (laughs) So that's, like, the ending... Is the literally because it's that joke, you know the, the the movie of the train coming at you, and people thought it was going to hit them, and they got scared, and then Amaterasu literally beats the evil gods by projecting a train on the wall, and then the train really does come through the screen and kill them, which I thought was dope. Like I really I really liked that that image and that idea. I thought that was a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, I, I think like at the end of the day, I respected what this was doing more than I enjoyed it, and I think it's a much less successful experiment in form than the magazine issue was. I think so, too, because, I mean, there was kind of parts that kind of dragged the story down. Like, there's this sort of part where Set is... One of them is sent to go get more marmalade. (laughs) Well, that ends up being, like, a lie. That's, like, part of her alibi for not killing Lucifer or something. Well, that's the whole thing. The whole... The original premise of the story is, is that they're all in this sort of... They're invited to a mysterious castle, mm-hmm. and the host for the event is murdered. Yeah, and, and then, then one by one, more of them are murdered. Yeah. And then what is revealed, so it's Lucifer built the mansion, Lucifer is murdered first. And then what is revealed is that what's actually going on here is that Woden built the mansion. Very obvious to anyone who's been reading the series. This is like the, they call it Valhalla. And it is very much like the proto-Valhalla to the one that we see in the main series. And Woden, fascist German expressionist movie god, <laughs> has teamed up with Set, elitist, possibly, I mean, I guess also fascist, writing god, and uh, Ball, fascist editor god. That's the thing that really made me feel like he was Ezra Pound. He goes on and on about people needing an editor and being like this elitist prick. They're going to... they've. They're using this as a cover to gather the gods together, to kill them, to take their powers, to power a machine in the lighthouse that Woden has built to manipulate the zeitgeist so they can create an authoritarian elitist utopia where the masses are kept pacified and art is left for the upper class to enjoy and create on their own. And that's why they hate Amaterasu and Susano, who are like movie populist, popular art people. And they get in a big fight that, like I said, ends with Amaterasu crashing a train through their faces. But I think this does a lot of... This happens a lot with, like, historical fiction where people write stories in a time period, but they use modern aesthetics and modern concepts in there. What do you mean? So, like, this whole plot about, like, keeping art for the elite and then the popular culture being like sort of fed to the lower classes is kind of like what's happening in modern society. But I mean, that's been going on forever. People were mad about movies when movies came about. Well, and now, yeah, now people are mad about social media. Yeah, exactly. So, it's, I mean, it's the same thing. But I kind of, this is why I said, like, if you were going to say, like, what recurrence do you want 
I would say I would rather have a Sherlock Holmes recurrence than an Agatha Christie recurrence. Uh, yeah. I mean, I liked all the ideas happening in here. I didn't need the Agatha Christie structure, maybe, necessarily. I mean, I think... The thing is, it goes kind of half-assed on the Agatha Christie structure. Because it's not really, like... A we mystery. don't get a detective. Like, we yeah. needed a detective god. Susano should have... Like, li- okay, here's the thing, right? You're like, oh, Sherlock Holmes, right? Buster Keaton has a fucking movie that's Sherlock Holmes Jr., I think. Something like that. He's got a movie where he's yeah, he is Sherlock Holmes. So Susano should have, like, stepped into the role of, like, comedy Sherlock Holmes and tried to actively solve the mystery as our active protagonist rather than being a moony, love-struck doofus. Which, like, I liked him. He's a likable character. But I feel like he, it, this would have been better if he was more active. Especially because, like, he's one of the main dudes that they're mad at. Like, they want to, they specifically are trying to, like, he says at some point, like, don't you, like, want to make people happy or something? Like, he, his artistic philosophy exists in direct contradiction to Ball's artistic philosophy, who's, he's kind of the mastermind behind this, him and Woden, at least. I also feel like it was a weird mix-up of, like, writers from the lost generation and like sort of like you said expressionist kind of movement but i like that because those things do exist at the same time it's, it's that stuff we talked about in like um gentlemen of the road where you're like you forget that all these things were sort of happening at once but do you think that like Hemingway huxley was... and orwell would be like hanging out with f scott fitzgerald no but they could have which is like it's like we're reading this one it's like well the fucking daft punk is not Hanging out with uh, Florence and the Machine or whatever, <laughs> but like the Morgan and Woden are together in the in the regular series. So like, I think that that's cool. That's one of the things that I, like this was felt the most like them really using the concept of the series in the context of history, like really effectively. Where it is like, okay, yeah, like this is a story where Buster Keaton fights. Ezra Pound and Virginia Woolf. Like, that's cool. I want more of that, honestly, than anything. I forget what I was going to say. Yeah, because I really... I mean, you don't think of Virginia Woolf as, like, a superhero. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. I think basically and mostly the problem that I had is that sort of, you know, the editorial decision to have so much text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally And I don't, like... I mean, it's not like the Sandman sort of also has a lot of text in it you know there's all four words and there's sort of like like introductions and things like that and there's a lot more dialogue yeah but But this kind of has like the text is more to set up and move the story along which i think when i'm reading a comic i want that to be done like visually yeah so i kind of that's the problem that i had with it uh yeah like i said i think this is like an experiment that's not terribly successful i think the thing with salmon is Sandman incorporates a lot of literature and stuff like that, but there's there is no part where there's just a page of text, really, in Sandman. And but there are lots of parts where like chunks of text are on the page, which I think is a better way to incorporate that into comics. Of like a big chunk of text next to like maybe one or two images that illustrate what's going on in that chunk of text. I can't think of a specific example, but I'm sure that that's happened in Sandman, right? Which I think maybe would have been a better way to do this, where it was like more excerpts from this sort of non-existent novel rather than just like whole chapters of it intercut with a couple pages of comics i do really like the thematically the idea that it raises here which is to draw a connection and a parallel between 
artistic elitism and fascism. Yeah, and I think it kind of there there is a sort of an undercurrent plot that goes on where they talk a lot about the impending um, world war. Yeah, so that's a big thing with Neptune is he's he is very much Hemingway. I, I made the thing of I talked about the joke of him. Hating adjectives. At one point he says there's no rules for a man as long as you do it without adjectives. That was a really funny line. Well, yeah, he's a big burly man and he's wearing a sweater. He's also kind of Captain Nemo. He drives around. He he does not currently have an octopus submarine, but he did. And now (laughs) Woden is using it. Yeah. Uh, Because he trades it out for a boat. There's also a part where he can't swim. And they're like, the god of the sea never learned to swim. And the reason is because that implies... That at some point the sea would gain mastery over him, which like <laughs> that seems like a very ma- that's a very masculine circular logic. That, yeah, that he has. and he is very much like he he is scarred by the war, World War One, and he on some level understands what's like that World War Two is coming, and I think he starts to sense that like what the other gods are doing might cause or hasten it, and so they kill him. Thirdly. This, they, they kill Lucifer. I forget. Yeah, Lucifer why. is just. I think Anaki kills Lucifer as part of. No, Anarchy. they have her head in the. They have not. They have his head in the lighthouse. They kill him. I think they just get tricked into doing it by Anaki, yeah. and then they kill Dionysus because he's prophesized World War Two, basically, which means that uh, the crimes of Grindelwald totally ripped off this comic, <laughs> and then they kill Neptune because he's going to try and stop them. Because he's he is anti-war and he's going to go to the lighthouse, and then they convince the Huxley and Wells Norns. This is also an interesting portrayal of the Norns, where they're all equals. There's no leader of the Norns like there is in the current one. Well, I think part of the problem with Cassandra is she's just bossy. Yeah, but so they talk the other two Norns into killing because, of course, Orwell is the anti-fascist, right? Of course. And he keeps getting into fights with Woden about national socialism. He even says at one point national socialism is a contradiction in terms, which I like I like that. And they turn on him and beat him to death and then there's that joke about the boot stomping on a human face forever. Because uh, they all get like a, when they're dead all their, the, it's all a one page spread and it gets like a title like a painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's his. So then they team up and then Minerva sends the rest of the gods against them to like finish out this fight so she can get all the heads at the end. And then the other reveal is it seems like initially when they they're trying to manipulate the Zeitgeist, which is like literalized as like an actual spirit of the age. Which is interesting because it's another whole mytho- mythology thing that is completely separate from the gods it seems like. Uh, they actually they actually summon it into the lighthouse and it seems like it dissolves uh, Woden. But it then turns out he actually teleported himself into his secret laboratory where he has his Mirmir, who's not his son in this. It's like a a, wa- like a wastrel that he picked up off the street. And he has captured this zeitgeist. Like, and it's like a being. And then Anarchy's like, you overplayed your hand, buddy. I'm gonna kill you now. And she <laughs> kills him and she burns the box with Mirmir in it. But then there's no resolution to, like, what the zeitgeist is. She says it's not the zeitgeist. It's something else that he summoned. And maybe someday someone will figure out what it is. But he's he's never going to know. So there's, like, another hanging thing where, like, that has to come up in the finale, right? Like, why don't... What is that? 
Do you have any ideas? I don't. Well, maybe they should have had Chekhov in there. Yeah, yeah. We only really got one mention of one Russian guy, and he died off screen. <laughs> but I think, like, the, yeah, when I was saying about like this being the dry run, it's like she's got all these gods, and they're they're too spread out, and they're alive for too long, and then she pushes them all together and tries to kill them all at once. So then the next round, she sets them all. She also brings up at one point. Uh, after one of them dies, I think maybe after Lucifer, Anarchy brings up the like gods can kill each other to get more life. Yeah. Thing and then so it's like okay, like that's sort of like what her plan ends up being in the current recurrence. So then it's like after this almost goes totally wrong, she spawns them all closer together, and then starts very quickly setting them against each other rather than just trying to let their egos run their course like she had been doing. Which is why she starts acting like that. And then she kills Lucifer first because Lucifer is always troublesome. And she does this same thing again where she lets some dude pretend he's Woden in exchange for working for her. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's cool. Do you have anything else to say about this one? I don't think so. So then the next... Oh, well, let's. this is the last historical one, right? There's not right. another one after this. So I want to ask a couple... One... Of all these historical versions we've seen of the gods, which one's your favorite? I liked the 1831. I, mean, I wanted to like the 1923 one the mm-hmm. best, but I feel like the one that appealed visually and story-wise to me was the 1823 one. I, I like the, the 1920s one the best, despite my problems with the, the, you know, the formal structure of it. Which historical version of a god was your favorite one? Because I I really like the uh, I really like this the sci fi writer Norns. Yeah, I like those too. I like the Woden from the eighteen thirty one. Like this sort of depiction, the Mary Shelley Woden. Yeah, of her with the sort of headpiece and the sort of nod to like the beginning of like science fiction and the genesis mm. of like technology fear and things like that. I like that, and I kind of like. I like them all, but I think the one that, like, kind of skewed me out more than anything was the 1373 one with this sort of imagery, the Catholic imagery. I kind of, like, I don't know if that's, like, my, like, issues with Catholicism. I kind of, like, I really don't like that sort of, I don't know why people are obsessed with, like, nuns and i don't even know why people are obsessed with evil nuns that's like another kind of genre of like horror but i think like i think the best use of the historical figures was the 1831 yeah i think you're probably right i mean the the 1920s one like except for like i said for the pro stuff like that keyed into a lot of like my specific things that i like uh i think it's i like susano a lot yeah and i like this kind of like i don't know why it's a missed opportunity not to sort of take in more of that sort of Shinto culture and, like, make, like, gods that reflect the sort of mythology as opposed to, you know, gods specifically. Yeah, so he he is a little weird in that manner because, like, he doesn't... Well, I think he has more and less to do with the god he's based on than is immediately obvious. So, like, for people who don't know, Susano is, like... He's a figure in Shinto mythology that is, I mean, the closest equivalent I can think of in like Western mythology is like Thor. He's he's very Thor. Like he's a, he's a warrior god of the storm. He fights a serpent, 
which in the case of Susano is the eight-headed Orochi. But he is kind of like... I like kind of the idea of making him this sort of silent movie clownish figure. Because he is kind of one of those... Um, like a little bit like an Anansi, like tr- kind of a trickstery sort of god who like gets by on his like guile and sort of stumbles into things. Like the way he defeats Orochi in the myth is he tricks him into getting drunk. So he tricks each of his heads into drinking where they can't see the other heads. So they don't realize the other heads are also drinking and it gets way more drunk than it thought it was going to. And then he chops all its heads off. I think it's, I mean, I'm not saying that like. It's almost like a Bugs Bunny trick. Yeah. It's not, I was like, I'm not saying that, like, the wicked and divine has to be, like, culturally equivalent across different cultures. But Mm -hmm. I feel like if you're going to go back and pull out historic, like, God characters to do in different recurrences, there's not a lot of, like, like, use of Native American culture. And there's not a lot to deal, like I said, with, like, the Shinto religion there's mm-hmm. sort of like these smaller more obscure gods there's like african um mythology that could it's have weird been that we don't get more egyptian exactly i mean we like literally only get like toth in like in like one panel and then zach met and amun ra in this who's like a fairly important character in this story uh but i think the 1923 recurrence is oh spe- set is specifically focused on water and storm gods because it takes place on an island yeah. and there's the big impending storm and I think that's sort of like a conscious choice. But, mm. Yeah, and then like the current one is like underworld and sky, light and dark yeah. gods. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's, um, let's move on to the... And now for something completely different. Yeah. This is, So the Christmas special is... Just a collection of short scenes that we didn't get to see in the main series. Some of them taking place before, uh, and then some of them taking place, uh, you know, during. There's a crap ton of artists on this. Well, Uh, I think it's what's nice about this, why you look up who all the artists is. There's sort of vignettes that are, like, sort of things that are made reference to in the main plot story. Like, there's a story of... We know that Ball and Nana have a relationship, and then that's depicted here. So there are kind of visualizations and little vignettes of things that we are told had happened in the past during the main story arch, and this sort of reveals them. And then some of them, I mean, are kind of just... They're all kind of nice and sweet, and, like, um, you get to see sort of... More of the gods and different sort of depictions of their lives. Like the first story is, it's like a scene with Ball and Anana where they're together. And even though we know they have a relationship, this shows you sort of the sort of dynamics of their relationship. Yeah. So I'm just going to run down real fast through all the artists we get. Uh, Chris Anka and Jen Bartel, uh, Rachel Slot, China Clugston Flores... Uh, who she's super underrated. Uh, I've been a fan of her for a while. Emma Viacelli, Rachel Stott, again. I might have said Slot the first time. Carla Speed McNeil, another super underrated artist. She had Finder, which we're definitely going to cover on this uh, show at some point. Uh, and then Emma Viacelli again. All some Most of these are colored by Matthew Wilson. Tamara Bonvillain. Bonvillain does a couple of them. She's a really great colorist, too. Yeah, that's pretty much it. 
So yeah, so the first one is we we get is like we get to see more of Balin and Nana's relationship, which is over by the time the series starts, and it hangs over the series, but we don't really get to see much of it, or we don't really get to see any of it except for like Ball's heartbreak over it, right? Yeah, and so it's like clear that like, well, it's weird. It's weird to see Ball in a sympathetic light now because. Uh, of what we know about him. Well, now, this is Christmas. Where, when does this Christmas episode issue fall? Uh, all the individual ones have different dates. So let me look. Let me look at this page specifically. Oh, so much text to scroll through. Uh, beep. So it starts in November 2013, which would be before the series starts. Okay. No, they're literally he's standing on Valhalla while they're building it. Yeah. In this. But yeah, it's like he is very serious and like Anana tries to get him to sort of break out of his shell and they hook up, but like Ball is still like haunted and then uh, he makes it rain on them while they're banging on top of this partially constructed building. (laughs) (laughs) Then we get... I guess that's nice. (laughs) It's nice, but it's also like, it's such a strange scene because it's like this sweet romantic scene between a dude that is dead, well not dead, a guy who's a severed head now. And the guy that we know is a child murderer. It's <laughs> I think it's funny that the one panel has like one of those sitcom like covers up like mm-hmm. the frontal nudity with like and then the next page is just complete full frontal nudity. Yeah, yeah. We get Sackmet and Lucifer sleeping together, and Lucifer's like very concerned with image. Sackmet isn't. A ball shows up to yell at Lucifer for hooking up with Inanna, and then Sackmet is basically like you're a bad person, and I don't like complications, and, like, dumps Lucifer, who then gets rained on by the uh, the sprinkler system. Well, I think it's a, it's funny because it shows Lucifer, like, she's depicted as being, like, a suave, kind of super modern, very confident woman, and mm-hmm. then they show her in this sort of, like, scene where she's kind of gets her comeuppance, I guess. Yeah, it's also, she's, like, checking Instagram while they're laying in bed together. And it's like, the, the a couple of these funnies push through that um, layer of artifice with Lucifer as, like, being carefree. And showing that, like, she is much more like Laura than she lets on. And is much more concerned with, like, appearance and status than she want, she ever wanted anyone to think. And I think it's, it's specifically having her with Sackment, like, creating this contrast where it's like Sackman is the person that Lucifer kept trying to trick people into thinking she was. Well, and I think it's very clear what Lucifer's hang-up is when you go, when you see the other little vignette that she's in. That's probably my favorite. We'll get to that. That's probably, I think, the best one of these. Yeah, and we get um, pre-Nurgle <laughs> slash Baphomet, Baphomet uh, hitchhiking to London. He, he, like, meets up with some other people that are all going to see the Morrigan, who's Summoned them to her performance by making a bird out of falling leaves and then burning the location and time into the leaves. I think this is sort of, I don't know if this is kind of like cementing the fact that the Morgan targeted Cameron to come. Well, no, he's the only one that's coming on his own. And I think that's part of maybe why she ends up being like, oh, he should be a god with me. It's because he actually seeks her out. Whereas everyone else that goes to her performance, it seems like she's summoning them there. Yeah. Yeah, so he hangs out with these people and he says a bunch of puns. And then he tries to give his puns a tragic backstory, which is weird. Uh, And that's basically it. It's just a short little scene. Let me get uh, one with Tara, where she is basically... So if you remember from the issue about her, 
there's that scene where she gets on stage and she plays the guitar and doesn't use her god powers. I just mimed playing a guitar, even though we're recording, like, just audio. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is supposed to be, like, a sensitive moment with, like, which is even more kind of heart-wrenching when you realize what Anaki ends up doing to her. I think it's dark, way darker than that. Yeah. So, like, that scene, this is, like, the precursor to that. She's practicing her guitar, and then she goes and she, like, seeks Anaki's counsel and has a conversation where she basically asks her, like, do you think this will work? Like, do you think people will like this? Can I do this? And Anakin's like, I mean, I don't get it, but you go for it. Some of them are going to like it. And then it's like, she did that because she knew it was going to go poorly, right? Right. Like, this is part of her trying to manipulate Tara into committing suicide. But then we know this happens because when we get to the story of Tara, she talks specifically about the failure of this event. Yeah. So then that kind of, you know, that's even darker... Is that she, that Anaki is setting her up for failure. Yeah, it's staged like it's supposed to be this heartfelt scene and then something tragic happens. But then you realize, like, this is, like, essential, this advice is, like, an act of violence. Yeah. And she also physically puts the mask on Tara's face again, which is, like, pretty fucked up. Uh, Yeah, that's, like, maybe the biggest, like, gut-punchy sort of scene of these. Look at, like, a really short scene where Laura is visiting Lucifer in prison and Lucifer's like, would you kiss me if this glass wasn't here? And Laura's like, I'd do more than kiss you. And Lucifer's like, hmm. And then <laughs> then we get what I actually think is the best one in this, which is Lucifer and Hazel slash Amaterasu hanging out and playing video games online together before their ascension to godhood. And Eleanor Rigby does not want to be a god. And Hazel does. Uh, and they're friends, and, like, she shows, uh, Hazel shows Eleanor some art she made of the past Morrigan, uh, and it's, like, clear, like, oh, she's, like, a Tumblr kid, like, that's funny, uh, and she's, like, very supportive initially, and then she ascends to godhood, and Hazel comes to visit her and tries to show her some of her art, and she, like, shoes her off and calls her a nobody, and it's really Well, it's not a really flattering picture that she draws. No, it's funny. Um, and then... (laughs) Uh, we get, like, a little bit of Lucifer's performance, and then she shows back up as Amaterasu, and she apologizes to her for being such a dick. But, like, it clearly doesn't end up... They don't go back to being as good of friends as they were. Well, I think... And they... now they're both dead. Oh, well, one of them's dead, and one's a severed head. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like a comment on, like, teen friendships. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, like, despite the fact that it involves them both ascending to godhood, it's, like, a pretty realistic depiction of, like, the shitty ways that, like, teen friendships can end. And that, like, oh, I gotta impress people, so I'm gonna pretend like I don't like you. Sort of, like, petty teen betrayal. Uh, and we get Ball and Laura hooking up. And Ball is like, hey, like, I know that we're not getting back at Inanna, but I... I know that Inanna would know that I would know that it would bug him if I hooked up with his friend, so don't tell him. <laughs> uh, and that is, that's the end of that. Uh, I, I thought this was cool. I thought this is an interesting idea for an issue. I kind of wish more comics did this. They're like, okay, let's, uh, let's go and show some, just some stuff that we haven't seen before. And there's no like connective narrative in this. It's really just like fleshing out the characters and the story and showing us things that we like kind of new happened on some level but like getting us a chance to like actually see them i thought it was pretty neat how'd you feel about this issue i thought 
it was interesting. I mean, like I said, it's kind of like it shows you the things that we were told visually, which mm-hmm. I think is nice. And I also think that they're like sort of just like short vignettes that kind of depict the gods in like a way that you might not see them during the main story arc. And I think mm-hmm. that's interesting. It's kind of almost like they're outtakes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like deleted scenes or something. Uh, I, I dug it. Also, all the art's really good. Like, yeah. It's definitely. all impeccable. Uh, and then we move on to the funnies, I guess, right? These, these are like collections of like strips and short stories by other writers and artists that are like parodying the characters and concepts from the series. I like that it's sort of this whole thing with like Lara Persephone with her phone. Like there's a full page and they're like at a concert of some sort. And the Norns, Lara's there, order, order is there, and uh, Baphomet, and then sort of Lara has this sort of ugly look on her face, and she's looking at her phone, and then you see, like, above them, it's like a tweet or a... It's a tweet from Karen Gillan, and he's making a pun. He says, I wish Medusa would stop objectifying people. And Lara looks disgusted, Urger looks enraged, and Baphomet is having a grand time, because we know that he loves puns. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's kind of funny. So then the funnies are kind of, they're like comic strips drawn and written by guest artists and writers. And they sort of have this weird, funny take on what's going on in the Pantheon. Yeah, so the first one is called The Wicked and the Canine. <laughs> it's, it's written by Karen Gillan, but it is, the art and the colors are by Erica Henderson with flats from Juan Castro. I love Erica Henderson's art. Uh, she is one of my, like, favorite artists working currently. She's really, really good at comedy. She's drawn a bunch of really funny books. I first became a big fan of hers because she did a really tragically short-lived comic, I believe written by Chris Sims, called Subatomic Party Girls, that was about an all-girl rock band that gets launched into space. Have a bunch of really funny jokes about Bob Seger in it. Uh, but she's also very... Notably, she's done uh, Squirrel Girl. She was an artist on Squirrel Girl with Ryan North. Her and Chip Zdarsky, who is shows up later in this, have a really great run on Jughead that I'm a huge fan of from like a few years ago. But yeah, so this is um, What If the Gods Were Dogs is basically the premise of this series, of, of this uh, strip. Anaki is sort of the dog she's minder. Like the dog. Yeah. And then I think it's funny where the opening line is, I said walkie walkies is happening now well she does the like you will be loved speech but it's like about god she's like you're you will be good boys you'll be bad boys no i'm sorry you're all good boys and then they all start barking we get like dog versions of all the characters but then sacmet is still a cat (laughs) uh, which is very funny uh there's some really good ones i like uh ball is like a big like malmoot yeah and Amaratsu is like a cocker spaniel, you know, with the long ears. But she's got the, the the Amaterasu makeup, and it extends across her ears. I don't know who this pug is supposed to be with the sunglasses. I don't know who that is either. I thought that might. Oh, that's Baphomet. Isn't I it? I would think that would be Baphomet. Yeah. Yeah, because they have a Nana in the back. It's like a little kind of like chihuahua with star on the eye. Woden's got the cone of shame yes. on, and he's standing next to Anakin because he's like, you know, he's the her pet. One of the dogs is wearing a mask. 
the Lucifer dog has a bone hanging out of her mouth. Like Leah, like her cigarette. Yeah, yeah. no, it's pretty great. It's yeah, the, the dog with the mask. Well, one thing, I've I, it's a weird specific image where I've always thought dog with a mask is either very funny or a very scary image. Uh, but yeah, they do the dog with the Terra mask. So then she says to them, uh, you're all going to go for walkies and you're going to go to dog heaven and you have to hold these bricks in your mouth and they all get in the bag she's like why do i start swinging it and then you're like oh she's gonna kill all these dogs and then they end up in doggy heaven and she says please i'm not a complete monster yeah well they're like why do i have to hold this brick and she's like oh i gotta build up momentum and it's like building to this very dark joke uh, that she's gonna toss him in the canal because she's like doggy heaven is just across the canal <laughs> and then yeah. they actually is a doggy heaven and they all go to it yeah, that, that one's really funny. That's a great start to this issue. The, the next one is The Wicker and the Divine, where it's like, remember the chairs from issue one, page two, panel one? <laughs> well, that one chair was me. And it's like, the gods reincarnate as chairs, and this version of Anarchy is a swing? Because it's like, the, like referencing the part where she's on the... Like, yeah. She, I guess she's supposed to be the swing that Anarchy was sitting on in that one scene. And then the last panel is sitting will never be the same again. It's like a smirking chair with flames coming out of it. The, ne- the next one is my favorite one. This is The Lost God, which is written and drawn by Chip Zdarsky. Like I said, he, he has that Jughead run. He worked on, he's the artist on Sex Criminals. It was a big hit. Uh, he's great. One of the funniest dudes working in comics right now. Um, possibly ever, actually, to be honest. He's a hilarious guy. Uh, and the premise of this is that there is a guy who is like a swing-ska duo in Pittsburgh. It's like this, like, I mean, it, I kind of think he's maybe supposed to be Dan Klaus, honestly. Um, <laughs> that makes it even funnier. But it's like this guy in like a pork pie hat with like a <laughs> blazer and a piano tie, and they play in this dive bar, and they only have two groupies who are uh, Carl and Dottie. And it's, like, him and his trumpetist, and he's like, uh, which one do you want to go home with, Dottie or Carl? And he's like, uh, Carl, I guess. <laughs> and he's like, great, then Dottie it is for me. Oh, she no longer does that thing she does. And then they see um, news about the recurrence on the screen, and the dude is like, I think I'm one of the gods, you know? I, I, it's like I've always suspected, you know, there's been all this weird electricity around me, and... The way the music just flows out of me and the uptick in my horny levels. I'm one of the Pantheon. And he gets ready to leave and go join them. And then Karen Gillan and Jamie McKelvey walk in. Except <laughs> Jamie McKelvey is like a cockney thug who ends every sentence within it. He's and, wearing like a shirt that just says oil. <laughs> yeah. And then Karen Gillan is dressed in all black with a tie that says I'm goth. Get it? And with skulls on it. Uh, they're also... I didn't look at the posters, but there's always really funny posters in Chip Zdarsky comics. There's one for E-Molly and her sad trio of exes, and then Johnny Jive, which is Johnny Five with a fake beard. <laughs> uh, and they're like, yeah, you know, you're going to ruin this because we're trying to do this sexy, cool thing, and you're like this dork from Pittsburgh. And so he has Jamie McKelvey beat this guy up to put him out, to like get him out of the way. And then he goes over to the trumpet guy, and one of my favorite jokes in this whole thing, he's like, can you color? But he says it with a U, like the British way. And he's like, what? And he's like, oh, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot where I am. And then he says it again without the U. And the dude understands it, and then reveals that he's Matt Wilson. (laughs) 
and they go off to make the comic together. And then the last panel is like that guy's hat and piano tie with his like lifeless hand lying next to it. It's like the perfect origin story. I thought that one was hilarious. And then the next one is Gentle Annie versus the world, which I think is really funny. This kind of reminds me of when um, Delirium is like learning how to drive in Sandman. It shows her like depicted in like different jobs, but she's talking like in her nonsense talk and the people are trying to like interact with her. (laughs) No one can understand her. She's a bartender, a doctor, a, a general, and then she's... Like on the intercom and like a nuclear submarine or something. (laughs) And every time she says like a bunch of nonsense and everybody's like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, like the guy's like, do you think the cancer is treatable, doctor? She goes, so you're tossies wheedle and shout till Cora's mosey, but core blimey, you've got a gad grin lodged in your whimsy dipple, so you have me, love, and all the better for belly winking. (laughs) And that's like a short little one-page gag, but yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah, because when she's in the when the when she's the general, they're like, "Well, should we shoot or not?" Like they don't really, <laughs> which I think is very funny. Uh, and yeah. then I think this is the, the last one. I think is the least sort of successful. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of this one. This isn't the last one. It's just the next one. Yeah, it's like Ball is doing like a um, like a press event, but they want him to rap, but he finds it to be degrading, and then also they give him a hype man who he's confused by, which I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> they're, he, they're like, he's there to bring up the energy, and Ball's like, I can literally shoot lightning. <laughs> and then he decides that he's going to connect with the youth his own way, and he becomes a teacher, and then the last gag is like, the principal comes in, and she's like, have you noticed that uh, the students in your class have just stopped turning up? And he's like, oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. I like the chalkboard where it says the learning objective for today is to find out how awesome lightning is. Yeah. There's like some funny stuff in this. I don't think that the gag works as well as a lot of the other ones. Uh, the next one is like a fake BuzzFeed list. <laughs> this is like pretty great. Five things everyone who's lived with Sacknet will understand. And then it's all about her being like a cat. So like Laura gets her a bed but she sleeps in a box. She walks on top of her laptop. She tears up the couch and her shoes. Tries to steal her food and then she makes up by bringing her kills. But it's just like a bunch of dude, dead dudes <laughs> that she leaves on her bed. Oh, that was pretty funny. And then this one is... I like this one a lot, too. Yeah, so this is like a Scooby-Doo parody. The Pantheon and 13 Go Mad in Wiltshire. Oh, well, let me... I was not shouting out artists. Let me make sure that I... Because I'm... be kind of a hypocrite if I didn't do that. Uh, the Gentle Anyone was by Chrissy Williams with Inks by Clinton Cowles. The Ball one was by... Uh, oh, hold on, my phone is being weird. Uh, uh, Romesh Ranganathan uh, with inks by Julia Madrigal colored by D. Cuniff who also colored the previous one the second one is by Hamish Steele and then this one is by Katie uh, Kitty Curran and Larissa Zagiris so it's like a Scooby-Doo parody uh, they're all in a giant van it's all the Pantheon redrawn as like Scooby-Doo type characters like Dionysus looks like Shaggy and Sackman looks like one of Josie and the Pussycats and then Minerva's like Velma. And they're all like exaggerated. So like Laura thinks everyone and everything is cute and has a crush on everybody. And oh, like, wait. you know, stuff like Lucifer that. Lucifer is Freddy. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is funny. So they're going to, the, to Stonehenge for Ragnarok. But there's a myth that it's haunted. Oh, Amaterasu's Daphne, obviously. There's a myth that it's haunted by the ghost druid. And they go to this like manor. 
Uh, and Amaterasu freaks out about the ghost druid. There's a funny visual gag where Baphomet jumps into the Morgan's arms like Scooby-Doo. Right. Uh, which is pretty good. They, you know, they run around, they get scared. A couple of the gods that die in the series start to disappear because of the ghost druid. Laura yells, they're just, they're getting all my secret crushes. <laughs> uh, there's a, like, a sinister framing of Minerva, like she's about to kill Lucifer and Amaterasu. And then they get interrupted by Baphomet and Inanna bumbling into a secret passageway. And there's like a pretty funny bit where he's like, Inanna's like, Baphomet tripped on a poker and opened a secret passage. And he's like, I did it on purpose. I like how there's, like, that side panel of all of them running. Yeah, it's like this... And they make the joke about, like, the pan, the background looping like it does in Scooby-Doo. There's a part where the ghost druid wails and Laura says, I don't know, but it sounded kind of cute. They're like, what is that? And she's like, I don't know, but it sounded kind of cute. Right. Uh, and then they unmask the ghost druid and it's Woden. And then they unmask Woden and it's <laughs> some old guy. Yeah. <laughs> and my favorite line to this was when Anakin's like, yes, some old guy. Why have you done this, old guy? <laughs> I like at the very end where he, where the old guy is like, I would have gotten away with it. And she's like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> oh, no, she's like, Lucifer says, oh, fuck off. Yeah, that's the last panel. Uh, yeah, that one was really good. I like that one a lot. Uh, the next one is like, they're asking everybody what their guilty pleasure song is. This is by Kate Leff. Yeah, like, Cabal says that he doesn't like Ed Sheeran, and Laura's shaving her head, and she's like, I'm not really into music anymore. Uh, I like that Ball is so hot that he's roasting a marshmallow on his, on his like, On arm. his bicep? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Woden is like, oh, you know, Nickelback is it gets more flack than they deserve, but then he's like, wait, I mean, uh, what are teens like? Uh, I don't know, Justin Bieber? <laughs> Cassandra gets mad about someone asking her questions and then yells at the other Norns when they think that they're, the interviewer is asking them. And then she tells them to go talk to the heads and Lucifer is mumbling but there's like a little caption panel that translates it and she says that she's tempted to say heads will roll by the yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, but then the end of this bit is they go and they ask the artist and Kieran Gillen tries to launch into like a huge rant about the concept of... The guilty pleasure, and he tells you to read his blog, and he's like, "Oh, I didn't even get to do a pun before they cut him off." And then McKelvey, who's wearing like a Captain Marvel hat and hoodie, is just like grumpy about having to draw crowd scenes. <laughs> and then the very last story in this is called Secret Origin. This one, I, I thought this was really funny. Yeah, I think too. this is very clever too because this is this comes up in the main plot point a lot her so there's phone. like a sequence of laura looking at her notably uncracked phone and she keeps seeing tweets by kieran gillen with horrible puns in them and she gets it's six panels on each page and it's like one side is all the puns and one side is her face as she gets increasingly disgusted and angry until she throws her phone on the ground and then picks it up and it's got the crack that it's had since the beginning and it says, secret origin of Laura's phone crack, as Wickdev totally plans for everything. No, really, we're not just making it up as we go along. <laughs> I thought that was a nice guess. Yeah, that was pretty funny. And it kind of loops it back to the Christmas issue yeah. where it sort of prequels. So now we know how Laura's phone got cracked. She got so mad at Jamie, at Karen Gillen's puns that she broke her own phone. But then there's Varian art. And there's one where there it's the 435 AD. Doesn't he look like Robert Patterson? Yeah, yeah, he does. I think that's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's variant covers for all of the issues. They're all pretty neat. Um, I like the one for the funniest. That's the, the dog dressed as Amaterasu. 
Yeah, they have like one that's like Lucifer, and it kind of really looks like it's like it's an Agatha Christie novel. Yeah, most of these are done Color. by the uh, by the the artist that worked on the issue. There's a cool Jamie McKelvey does one that's like a um, that's for an Image Expo. That's a variant for the 1923 issue that looks like an old poster. Yeah. With uh, Lucifer looming over his mansion with like a drink and a cigarette and his hair done up like horns, which I really dug that one. There's also like a black and white version of that. There's one of uh, Ball and Anana making out. Yeah, that that is this volume, uh, volume eight. Old is the new new. I kind of feel like it's making you, it's lulling you into this false sense of like well built being like you end that issue with like on like this sort of funny upbeat note Mm -hmm. and then you know that the next issue you're just gonna be like ripped apart because it's got it's gotta be crazy yeah like the final volume and it kind of is the end of the series so you know it's gonna be like action-packed and then heartbreaking and violent and everything else but Meanwhile, you're, like, looking at pictures of, like, the Pantheon as dogs at the dog park. I do think it's nice to have this, like, kind of respite here. I like now having all this context of the historical ones and the stuff from the Christmas special. Like, it feels like I have, like, a really full, not grass on the series, like, lots of things I don't understand still. But, like, I feel like it's really, like, giving me a lot more hooks into the world and characters of this series going into the finale like i like i liked having this here even though i do kind of wish the historical ones were spread out amongst the other volumes yeah i mean i kind of i can see it being done both ways mm-hmm. and having some pros and cons of both those ways yeah because i think like you the problem is i don't know where you would put the funnies but you could have maybe split these up into the other the historical issues up into the other volumes and then put the Christmas special at the start of the last volume as like, a, here's a refresher for the, about the characters. But then I have no idea where you put the funnies after I that. I think you could have put the funnies just... They, it kind of reminds me of like when we were little and we would read like Archie comics or mm-hmm. we would read like the old like kind of Marvel comics and they would have like letters to the editor and then they would have like little cartoons and stuff like that. It was sort of to make it more like a magazine feel. Mm-hmm. Like, something like that. I could even just put the funnies at the end of the last volume as, like, and, you know, have a little laugh now that we're done. Yeah. Uh, what are you most looking forward to being resolved in the final volume? We don't hmm. use, Last time when we did all the final volumes, we didn't talk about our expectations. Yeah, well, there was less of a... Well, not, I guess that's not the case with Sandman. But for, like, Swamp Thing, there, there was less of, like, an ongoing plot leading into the last one. It was, it was like, there was one story that had just been started that we were looking to see wrapped up. But that was kind of it. Hmm. I mean, I just want to see... Really, more than anything, I just want to see John Blake get his comeuppance. David? David Blake! I keep doing that. I'm going to cut that out so I don't look so stupid. I'm going to leave it in now that I've referenced it. I really want (laughs) to see David Blake get his comeuppance. They really did such a great job of making him such like a despicable heel in the last couple volumes. Of just like the, the creepest creep that you can imagine almost. And I really just want to see him get his shit fucked up. And mostly, I just want to know what is going on. Like, I I want to see, like, I want to, you know, get to the end and be able to look back on this series with as full an understanding of the mythology as I can. Yeah. What what are you looking forward to? I think I'm looking forward to seeing the sort of 
end of the story arc of Laura. Mm. I feel like she has she has at this point distanced herself from the Pantheon, but I feel like she's important to the resolution of the Pantheon. So I'm looking to see how they bring that back and resolve that issue. She obviously has like issues that she needs to resolve with Cassandra. There's stuff going on. She she needs some kind of like redemption from her relationship with Ball. So mm-hmm. I kind of I'm very curious to see how she gets the sort of resolution that she needs. Yeah, I think it's they did a, a I don't even know what what I want to say, but there's there's that thing where it's like at the end of the Lucifer stuff early on, they bring up this like mystery about Laura, like well, what's up with her lighting doing the flick and the, with the finger and the fire that one time, and then after that it just goes into the background and then is made completely irrelevant by her own god powers, and now finally they brought that back, and so I'm really interested to see like what that is. And how that ends up linking into the resolution of her character arc. And we know that she's had this sort of eons-length relationship with Anaki. Mm-hmm. And then she doesn't, in the modern recurrent, she doesn't really spend a lot of time with Anaki. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, other than well, she murdering gets, her. Well, she can't really because she gets her powers and then Anaki thinks she's killed her and then she shows back up and murders her. They don't really have any time to interact uh, before that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting with Minerva. Minerva is, like, really treated like a child, but, like, throughout the history of the Pantheon, she's a major player. Yeah, I thought that was another th- that was another thing that I liked about the having the historical issues here, like, as opposed to spread out. Like, a sort of con against that pitch I was making is I liked the, the sort of irony where the, none of those really treat... Minerva, like, she's sinister, but because we already know about her true nature, like, it totally casts her character, like, in the uh, the 1920s issue in, like, a totally different light than how the text presents it, which I, I thought was a, a sort of interesting little little thing happening there. But yeah, does anybody know? Only Woden knows that she's more than she lets on at this point, right? I think so. Well, it's kind of clear that also that Anaki and Woden are worked together for a long time for a lot of the Pantheon. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Do we have anything more to say about this one? I don't think so. Are you excited about the end? I mean, it's bittersweet, I guess, to do a long series. I mean, I really missed Swamp Thing when I finished it. Mm-hmm. But then I got really excited because I saw that the Swamp Thing TV series is now coming to the CW. Well, yeah. Well, because they basically didn't ha- don't have anything to show. They they picked up the... Uh, well, is, it, what... is it the one that was on, supposed to be on the DC yeah. streaming? Okay. I wonder if it's more successful on the CW if it might actually end up getting a second season like it I was li- denied before. I like the look of this Swamp Thing because he looks like Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, which I like. But is it a new story, or is it one of the stories from one of the comics? Uh, I don't know. I actually don't know anything about it. I think it's a new story that takes influence from stuff from the comics, but isn't directly adapting anything. So, do you know if there's any tubers in there, or maybe I should do something? I mean, I hope there's tubers. But yeah, I'm excited to get into the to the end of this. I mean, it's really just like everything's been building and building and building, and there's just so much stuff 
to resolve. Like, I, I was, like, almost tempted to just go into reading the next volume the second I finished this one. And I was like, no, I'll wait so that I'm, I'm fresher for when we talk about it on the podcast. So what do we have coming up next? Well, it's going to be December. And so, right? Yes. It's going to be December. We're, this is November. This is the end of November. So next episode will be in December. Yes? I don't know. Yes, it will. We just did Gentleman of the Road. A gentleman, yes. We did Gentleman on the Road. And then this. Then this. So then it'll be December. So we're obviously we're going to finish Wigan the Divine, but before that, uh, we're going to get into a Christmas classic, and we're going to read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. So I'm going to listen to the audiobook. I found a version on Audible that's free that has Tim Curry reading The Christmas Carol, so that's what I'm going to do instead of rereading is there a... Do you think, like, the universe has a sense of justice and symmetry and created a version of uh, Treasure Island that's read by Michael Caine? I don't know. Because it's like Muppet Christmas Carol's got Michael Caine, Muppet Treasure Island's got Tim Curry, and then Tim Curry reads Christmas Carol, so Michael Caine's got to read Treasure Island just to balance everything out. I don't know, but I've been thinking a lot about Tim Curry because I saw this thing on Twitter that made me really think about him a lot and it said you could tell how old you are by how you think about Tim Curry. Okay. And I was kind of thinking about that a lot because <laughs> I was like how do I think about him? Do I think about him as like Clue? Do I think about him as like Rocky Horror? Do I think about him as like Pennywise? There's lots of different ways uh, to think about him. I think about like in my mind because of when I was a kid, I think of him as, like, a voice actor, actually, more than anything. Because he was, like, he was the Hexus in Fern Gully. Like, that's, like, probably the first time I ever, you know, was made aware of him. He is, I think he's in Ah Real Monsters? I think the funniest thing about Tim Curry is when you look in IMDb and you search him, it comes up and it says, Tim Curry, actor, comma, Congo, 1995. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> is that his iconic work? Because I mean, that's, I, I don't even think about Congo when I is think he about in, him. Wait, he's in Congo? I don't even remember him being in Congo. It comes Ernie up as, Hudson's in Congo. It comes up as his like, first... Weird. But yeah, so he, like, when I was a kid, he he's like... He's the he's King Chicken in Duckman. He's, uh, he's in Mighty Max. He's in... Uh, Pirates of the Dark Water. He's in Over the Garden Wall, which I know you really liked. Uh, oh, yeah, he's in that. So is uh, Christopher Lloyd. That's got a wild in... uh, voice cast. Uh, but yeah, like I tend to associate him more with these like these voice acting roles. I've been playing like weird villains and over-the-top characters. I mean, I do like his performances in live-action stuff, but that just tends to be the thing that I associate him with more do than Do you anything. think of him as in Congo? No. I mean, that's weird, right? I forgot he was in Congo. He's also a bad guy in Darkwing Duck. That's an, that might also have been the first time I heard his voice, besides Fern Gully. No, I, Tim Curry's great. Uh, that's probably really good, at that version with him him reading it. Uh, we'll probably also talk about some of the movie versions, whoa, too. Whoa, 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 What? He was in one episode of the Poirot mini se- uh, TV series. Is he like a villain? He says he's Lord Bonton. Okay. I assume that's a villain. We gotta, gotta which, go. Which Poirot is that? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, we can't get bogged down in this. No, we can't. I gotta go watch it. All right. So I'll see you later. All right, spoiler alert, stay tuned.